in February 1942, the Japanese army defeated the British Empire at Singapore. Singapore had been thought to be an impregnable fortress, a psychological pillar of the British Empire. It fell quickly and its defeat led Winston Churchill to describe it as the worst disaster and largest capitulation in British Empire. It led Australia to rethink its alliance with America. Will the fall of Kabul in 2021 lead to the same questioning of which empire we belong to? That is the question for today's Burning Archive. Welcome to the Burning Archive. I am Jeff Rich. I am a writer, historian, podcaster, poet, and very minor government official. And the Burning Archive is a podcast all about things history and culture, where the past is never dead, the past is not even past, and where by thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present. So today, I am looking at how Australia might respond to events, indeed its defeat, in Afghanistan. And it's one of series now of podcasts that I have done here at the Burning Archive podcast on the responses of the different great states around the world. Australia, of course, isn't really a great state. Let's call it a middle power. But great states and middle powers associated with those great states Back in episode 14, I gave some of my immediate takes on Afghanistan. In episode 15, I spoke about the grand strategy of the Anglo-American empires that drove the occupation of Afghanistan. And in episode 16, I talked about the response of the neighbours of Afghanistan and the great states of Eurasia. And in episode 17, I talked about the American response to its humiliation in Afghanistan. And so this week I'm going to talk about Australia's response, uh, not only, I guess, to the, the defeat in Afghanistan, but to the emergence of a multipolar world. Or is it the, the hardening of a multipolar world into a bipolar world again? Are we entering Cold War 2? Indeed, World War 3. I hope not. But anyhow, and what I'm going to talk through today is I'm going to talk about the kind of responses that we've seen in Australia so far to events in Afghanistan and how, how it's affecting perceptions of the alliance with America and the relationship with China. I'm going to talk then broadly about the use of historical analogies because there's been a lot of those in response to the fall of Kabul. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about the fall of Singapore and its importance to Australian historical thinking about its place in the world and its geostrategic diplomacy and military postures and all that sort of thing. Then I am going to do a quick snap history of Australian foreign policy since 1942, particularly against this question of if we are indeed leaving a world dominated by Anglo-American empires, 
what kind of conceptual shift does that require for Australian foreign policy, especially if we look in a little bit of detail, particularly around some of the assumptions about Afghanistan and the multipolar world in the most recent broad statement of Australian foreign policy, the white paper of uh, 2017, then finally I'm going to be a little bit daring and put out my own idea about how Australia might develop its own Primakov doctrine to sort of redefine its relationship with America, China and the multipolar world. Just as a flawed experiment, nothing more. So a quick, a few quick framing comments. I'm recording this episode on the 17th of September in lockdown Melbourne. In the next day or so, the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organisation is meeting. I think the uh, CSTO, the Defence Organisation based in Central Asia, has met. And there are clearly reports around a huge humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and reports of uh, some level of factional infighting amongst the Taliban. So the situation there in Afghanistan is still very uncertain, both, I guess, domestically and diplomatically, as to how things will emerge. Uh, we're also just celebrated the 70th anniversary of the Australia and New Zealand-US alliance, ANZUS. So, you know, very timely to be thinking about these matters and uh, of course there's been much reflection over the last week on the meaning of the events of 9-11 which will come back into play as we talk about historical analogies the Australian Foreign Minister, Defence Minister are over in America at the moment having talks about defence with American counterparts and in the next day or so there will be a meeting of the quad which is india i think japan australia and america which is a kind of an emerging diplomatic geostrategic sort of grouping lots of action going on and some of these things clearly will uh, affect events uh, and then bizarrely almost serendipitously as i had been planning this particular talk for some time uh, yesterday the President of America, Joe Biden, the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, and the Australian Prime Minister, that fellow down under, Scott Morrison, announced a new so-called strategic partnership, but primarily a deal to provide access to Australia for nuclear submarines. And obviously that has led to actually global discussion uh, of Australia's role or the geopolitical uh, bigwigs are talking about Australia which is you know unusual and a little bit uncomfortable coming from Australia because so often you see astonishingly ill-informed comments but there you go and I should say before we get into the substance of this discussion that announcement is has provoked some level of political debate and i'm not really going to get into the particulars around the a us uk or zook or asuk or alsuk oz alliance 
I'll really be talking more about broader historical geopolitical questions and not obviously participating in any kind of political debate about the nuclear sub decisions themselves. Okay, so that's the outline of today. A bit of a quick view of how Australia has been responding to defeat in Afghanistan, discussion about historical analogies and the fall of Singapore and its importance to Australian geostrategic thinking, and hence the question of, well, are we seeing something similar today? Can we draw an analogy between the fall of Kabul and the fall of Singapore and then perhaps some discussion of how Australia might need to reframe its foreign policy to meet the needs of a multipolar world. Where empires are in rivalry, as we say on the Burning Archive podcast. Okay, so first let's talk about the responses in Australia to the defeat in Afghanistan. Now, I'm not going to try to do a comprehensive analysis of this, but in a couple of articles in the Australian newspaper, which in some respects probably has the best foreign affairs military diplomatic coverage of any newspaper in Australia. There were a number of significant pieces in late August and early September which really gave a pretty good view around how Australians are going to respond. And the journalist Paul Kelly, who is a veteran journalist, he's occupied a kind of role as almost, if I can use a historical metaphor, the kind of chronicler of the Australian court, the historical chronicler of the Australian court for many years. He first wrote one of his many books on national governments in the 1970s around uh, Gough Whitlam, and there's been a whole series of these events, including around the Hawke Keating years and the Rudd Gillard years, etc., that have been the, I guess, like almost like the establishment view of the reading of Australian national politics. So he's quite a significant representative of, I guess, mainstream establishment thinking in Australia. And his piece in The Australian on 21st and 22nd of August was headlined, A Game Changer for the American Alliance. Four former PMs agree Australia must become more self Reliant. These are the. Uh, this is the weekend immediately after the fall of Kabul, the rapid uh, fall of Kabul to the Taliban. Within that piece, Paul Kelly says that Biden's Afghanistan call is so devoid of judgment and courage that it raises a fog of doubt about Biden himself and about America's democratic sustenance as a reliable great power. He described it as a strategic wake-up call for Australia that will force us to rethink the US alliance in terms of our rhetoric, our responsibilities and our self-reliance. So not rethinking the US alliance itself so much as what our role within the US alliance should be. Significantly, Paul Kelly spoke to four prime ministers for this piece, Tony Abbott, Kevin Rudd, Malcolm Turnbull and John Howard. And let me just quote just from Tony Abbott and Kevin Rudd to represent both sides of politics without going 
too much uh, into all of them. Tony Abbott said that the nature of the evacuation or, or the retreat and defeat of America in Afghanistan represented a strategic watershed for Australia and that Australians need to ask themselves how much fight is left in Biden's America. Australia should inject more spine into the alliance, really expect to play a larger role and pay more for its defence. So really saying, well, clearly America is weak and pusillanimous and we need to muscle up and convince America to be a bit tougher. Kevin Rudd said with his usual fondness for abstract nouns that it was a profound paradigm shift in global and regional geopolitics uh, and that Australia should plan for both a regionally engaged America and an America in retreat. But without questioning the US alliance, we just need to do more to manage our strategic interests. And Kevin Rudd really advocated more military spending and a big Australia, which again were common themes under his prime ministership. Also in the Australian on the 21st and 22nd of August, there was a piece by David Kilcullen, who's a kind of defence consultant and journalist, who actually, I believe, was a key strategic military advisor to, I think it was David Petraeus when he was in Afghanistan managing a surge or a counter-surge or one of those counter-surgency operations and he really came to prominence I guess particularly when ISIS uh, was around and he wrote a couple of very scary pieces about just how significant the ISIS phenomenon was and David Kilcullen's comments were that the Afghan war was winnable but we did not win it rather we screwed it up and we have been defeated. He said that it showed that our major ally, America, did not possess a modicum of moral fibre and basic competence to muster the will to fight, and so saw decades of effort go down the drain. And uh, he had similar very, very hard words to say about America and talked about the nauseating uh, victim-shaming response of blaming the Afghan army for not fighting hard enough as America was scampering away in the middle of the night. So again, uh, I guess he's probably saying, oh, well, we really could have been. We could have won this one if we, if our major ally had a bit more moral uh, fortitude and but you know there is this sort of sense of uh, wasted effort over decades and then Greg Sheridan who is really the leading international affairs foreign affairs uh, journalist in Australia and has been writing on it since the 1970s he writes from a conservative perspective but he's extremely knowledgeable and well connected and he said that the Afghan fiasco showed Australia that Biden's promise of um, restoring America's prestige and status in the world had shattered and we must hope for a characteristic rebound from America. So not ditching the US quite yet 
but really concerned about what it uh, meant. And in uh, on the 2nd of September, he wrote a subsequent piece where he really said he went a little bit further than that very early response and said that broadened out the significance of the defeat, saying that it it would lead, it is it had led to doubts around the world about the certainty of US commitments to defence partners and allies, and also that it represented a defeat of counterinsurgency, which had become sort of military doctrine and and to some degree which uh, Australia's army had reorganised around to fight uh, pointless wars in areas that are not of real strategic value to Australia, e.g. Afghanistan, and also the defeat of liberalism. He concludes that that doesn't necessarily mean defeat of democracy because uh, he refers to the recent, to the example of Indonesia still being democratic but being much less illiberal. Of course, Indonesia is Australia's neighbour and the world's largest Muslim nation. And in that piece, Greg Sheridan said, The West's own liberalism, shorn of its transcendent purpose, is consuming itself in identity politics obsessions that look both mad and repellent to virtually the whole world. If Western nations make this kind of liberalism part of their foreign policy, they will fail even more comprehensively in the future. So there we see this deep disappointment, I guess, in America, but also a sense that this isn't just a a lost battle. This is a strategic defeat and also a defeat in a of a set of ideas underpinning military strategy and a set of ideas dominating culture and politics in western societies so if you like it 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 links up uh, the themes of political decay cultural decay and imperial decay and in a sense social fragmentation i'm not necessarily sharing greg sheridan's perspective but i guess it's a, it's a perspective on the same set of trends and issues that I've been talking about in the Burning Archive, which I guess, um, there you go, I'm clearly on the money, eh? All right, so Peter Credlin, who is former uh, Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Tony Abbott, and now prominent journalist, uh, also penned a piece about banging the drums of war where really she was arguing that Australia needed to prepare itself to sacrifice more to fight for a free Taiwan, seeing US commitment to a fight in Taiwan as a test of confidence in American security guarantees. And again, Peter Credlin, a little bit like, I guess, Tony Abbott's comment earlier, uh, and comments from Peter Dutton and others are certainly, and this has been a theme in Australian politics over the last couple of years, escalating the, the rhetoric and the, and the uh, issues around the strategic conflict with China, as well as drawing the conclusion that Australia needs to be more independent and self-reliant in its defence arrangements. Which is interesting, and we'll get to that later, because 
that's also one of the issues around the fall of Singapore as a historical model. Uh, More recently, again, this is reflected in a piece from Paul Kelly where he talks about how not just in defence arrangements but in economic policy, e.g. you know, increasing trade relationships with countries other than China, Australia is now working towards a more nationally integrated economic and security strategy to resist Chinese intimidation. There is a big geostrategic issue thrown here. And again, I guess this is where drawing the right lessons from historical events is really important. Also in a piece on the Australian International Affairs Association website, a person called Colin Chapman said this, and again this is interesting, for those guiding Australia's foreign policy, the lesson of the sacking of Kabul is clear. I love the fact that he says it's the sacking of Kabul, even though really they just walked in. I don't know if there was actually any looting. The only looting or sacking that seemed to go on was was uh, Ashraf Ghani taking $160 million and the Americans uh, locking away the Afghan uh, reserves in their banks. But anyhow, this is what this guy says. The lesson of the sacking of Kabul is clear. The Hugh White concept, we'll come back to Hugh White later on, but he's a leading strategic thinker in Australia who's argued for a number of years that Australia needs to look more to China and less to the US. The Hugh White concept of a choice between China and the US is dead. Australia's ally remains Washington, but Canberra needs to build more self-reliance, switch to French nuclear submarines rather than those on order. Interesting that, because that's the whole AUS-UK announcement, although we didn't choose the French one, and engage much more urgently in regional security talks aimed at allowing China, allowing China, to take its rightful place as a global leader while seeking to persuade Beijing or limit its military expansion. And finally, on the uh, Australian response, we have Hugh White. And he says, I think the Afghanistan withdrawal must make the Chinese more confident that if they push hard on Taiwan, America will cave. In Australia, issues are very much being seen around this whole US alliance and how secure America's uh, security commitments to Australia are and how much we should really either lock in behind the US and get them to be more aggressively assertive in uh, this part of the world or perhaps choose a different path. One way of summarising all this is that for Australia the significance of Afghanistan isn't so much the tragedy there or the, the pivotal role of Central Asia in American geostrategic strategy or the growth of Eurasia or anything like that. The issue for Australia in the fall of Kabul is can we rely on our our great and powerful friend, America? Can we rely on the American empire to defend us when it really counts? And Hugh White has made the point 
that in a way much of Australia's military involvements since uh, 2001 and uh, even in the 1990s, but 2001 with the 9-11 attack, which led to the Afghan war and the Iraq war, have been about alliance management, sort of going over to the Gulf of Afghanistan to, to prove ourselves to be a loyal ally. If and when there's a threat to Australia, America will come to the party. And hence the wound that has been opened up in the American, in the Australian political defence security elite is, wow, maybe we can't rely on America. Maybe our assumptions about America's pivot to Asia and its forward posture and all that sort of thing are wrong. And in a way, this opens up the great wound the great historical myth so to speak that has underpinned australian foreign policy geostrategic policy since world war ii uh, which relates to the fall of singapore where the british empire was shown to be an unreliable ally or interpreted as an unreliable ally for protecting australia's regional security interests and we'll come back to that later. Without going into the immediate politics of all these discussions, what is interesting is the extent to which there are these historical analogies and metaphors that are at play in the discussion of Australia's response to Afghanistan. And this is heartening in many ways because like people like Neil Ferguson who talk about applied history and the importance of thinking about history to apply it to current events and it's a great example of how the past isn't dead, the past is not even past, but how thinking about history can be a great way of getting a story in your head to try to look at really complex events and then working out what to do. And there's a great book by someone called Newstat. Um, I can't remember his first name for the moment, but Newstat called Thinking in Time, uh, The Uses of History for Decision Makers, that, you know, talks about the importance of using historical analogies in a smart way for big foreign policy sort of decisions. They can often be used in a, a reactive, reflexive way or just entrench the same old, same old myths. And so when one does do it, you really need to look carefully at likenesses and differences and what you really know about the situation and you know what is what, what you might just be filling in the blanks with your interpretation of the past about. And I might come back to that in uh, another episode because it's really quite an interesting and thought-provoking book and perhaps also discuss some of Neil Ferguson's work around using applied history. But certainly we're seeing in the response to events in Afghanistan an awful lot of this sort of historical analogy being drawn. So, and I've talked about this a little bit in some of the previous episodes, like, is this like the fall of Saigon in 1974? Is it like the Anglo-Afghan War in the 1840s? Is Afghanistan the graveyard of empires and that this is just a repeat of that? 
Is it like what I provocatively suggested, like partition in 1948, the partition of India and Pakistan in 1948, where there was a sudden and cowardly, let's say, retreat of the British Raj from India, planned for but poorly executed, and it led to a humanitarian catastrophe? Uh, Is it appeasement in the 1930s? Is it the Iran hostage crisis in 1971? Is it a Guns of August situation, a World War One type situation, or is it, at least from an Australian perspective, like the fall of Singapore? And interestingly, there was an interesting discussion on the Good Fellows podcast the other day in the context of commemoration of the 9-11 events, the, the, the attack on the Twin Towers in New York and in the various other places in 2001, Uh, there was a discussion between Neil Ferguson and Condoleezza Rice exactly on this point of what was the historical model in the minds of decision makers uh, responding to these events and to what extent was it uh, right and how might a different historical model lead to a different conclusion. And Condoleezza Rice, who was, I think, the National Security Advisor to George W. Bush uh, in 2001, so was directly participating in all these events, uh, offers her reflections, and it's really quite fascinating. If you want to listen to it, I'll, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes. She said, well, yeah, the, the, the model that we had at the time was Pearl Harbor. It was a surprise attack on the homeland, and it very much dominated the the uh, response of America and led to this sort of, you know, mobilisation of everyone uh, in a war against terror, like the the mobilisation of the country America to finally enter World War Two and attack both Japan and Germany. But Neil Ferguson provocatively says that perhaps it wasn't like Pearl Harbor; it was more like the 1963 assassination of John F. Kennedy, the president. Anyhow, I won't go into that more, but you can see by thinking about it in that way, you you don't put the whole world on a war footing. You don't try to engineer World War Three against a, a tactic of terrorism. You perhaps have a much more limited focused response and you also look at where the domestic fissures in your society are that might have contributed to a crime rather than a act of war. So very interesting discussion and perhaps similarly relevant to us today as we think about what is the historical significance of the fall of Kabul. Hey, I thought I'd just take a minute to thank you all for listening to the show and just mention a few things where you could help me uh, grow my audience and help make the show that little bit more successful. So do share links to the show on your social media preferred platforms. Twitter, YouTube, whatever, Instagram, and um, I'm not a great social media user, so please do get out there and tell, tell your friends about the show. 
You can also read more of my uh, writing at The Burning Archive, T-H-E-B-U-R-N-I-N-G-A-R-C-H-I-V-E.com. And, of course, you can also buy my book, Gathering Flowers of the Mind, Collected Poems, 1996. leave a review on iTunes um, and I don't know whether Spotify has some sort of way in which you can promote the show within Spotify but do that too and uh, just spread the word about the Burning Archive okay let's head on back to the show So this takes us to the fall of Singapore and its place in the stories of Australian thinking on foreign affairs, defence policy, geostrategy. And interestingly, of course, there's a connection there between Pearl Harbour, the event that dominates American fears about an attack on its homeland, all that were reactivated in 2001 because falls. Singapore happened uh, in the months following Pearl Harbor and obviously it was the same Japanese imperial forces that were attacking both the Americans and the British imperial forces in Singapore and Malaysia. Again, if we go to Hugh White, he, he the uh, Australian stru- you know, uh, strategic defense thinker, he says that most of us would agree that the fall of Singapore in February 1942 remains the biggest strategic shock Australia has ever received, but we pay too little attention to why it was such a shock and what we can learn from it. Again, perhaps this might be instructive. Why is the fall of Kabul a shock and what can we learn from it? It really was the fall of Singapore that is often seen as the pivotal event where Australia switched from being a loyal, subservient member of the British Empire to being an ally of the United States of America and then being, let's say, a loyal, subservient outer province of the American Empire. And the Prime Minister who affected that enormous strategic shift was John Curtin, a Labour Prime Minister. And the fall of Singapore and the shift from British Empire to American Empire has been particularly mythologised by the Labour left in uh, Australia and particularly significant to their, I guess, interpretation of our history of foreign affairs and in fact it was before the fall of Singapore in February 1942 that uh, John Curtin was already signalling the significant change in geostrategy for Australia 
In fact, three weeks after Pearl Harbor, and it's important to remember Pearl Harbor was a, a surprise attack by Japan on America in Hawaii, but at this on the same day, Japan launched attacks across the Indo-Pacific in multiple places, including the Malayan Peninsula in the way, which was then controlled by Britain, up into Singapore. So it was a multi-pronged attack by Japan. It wasn't just an attack on America. Sorry, my American listeners, I know Pearl Harbor is all about America, but in fact it was about as much about the presence of the British Empire in Asia as it was about America. So three weeks after the Pearl Harbor attack, the then Australian Prime Minister John Curtin published a article in the Melbourne Herald, which was the predecessor of today's Herald Sun, called the and his article was called The Task Ahead. And it's from this article, which I think he then used later in other speeches, that John Curtin's most memorable line, often quoted line, representing the shift from British Empire to America, was written. And it goes like this. It says, Without any inhibitions of any kind, I make it quite clear that Australia looks to America free of any pangs as to our traditional links or kinship with the United Kingdom. So the Japanese army is coming down Southeast Asia and it's attacking America. It's a huge presence. It hasn't yet taken the key port of Singapore or the key fortress of Singapore, but it's threatening Singapore. And John Curtin says, yep, we've got to work with America now. And it's important to note that this is not Although it's often presented this in this way, it's not just the Australian political elite freeing themselves of an emotional prejudice uh, of full luck tugging towards uh, the United Kingdom and the British Empire. It's actually quite significant, and I think that, uh, uh, it's actually a fairly realistic piece of geopolitical thinking done in uh, the crisis of war. And it's interesting to just have a little listen to what John Curtin actually says in that piece before he makes that comment about without any inhibitions. So let me just read then from John Curtin, The Task Ahead, 1942. He says, I see 1942 as a year of immense change in Australian life. The Australian government's policy has been grounded on two facts. One is that the war with Japan is not a phase of the struggle with the Axis powers, i.e. the European powers, uh, Germany, etc., and Italy, but is a new war. And the second is that Australia must go on a war footing. Those two facts involve two lines of action. One in the direction of external policy as to our dealings with Britain. Okay, And then let's listen to the others. The United States, Russia, the Netherlands, East Indies, i.e. what we now know as Indonesia, and China in the higher direction of the war in the Pacific. All 
the powers of uh, the area, Indo-Pacific. The second is in is the reshaping, in fact, the revolutionising, revolutionising of the Australian way of life until a wall footing is attained quickly, efficiently, and without question. And I'm not going to dwell on that part so much. He then says, now with equal realism, we take the view that while the determination of military policy is the Soviet's business, i.e. Russia, we should be able to look forward with reason to aid from Russia against Japan. We look for a solid and impregnable barrier of the democracies against the three Axis powers. And, and let me emphasise this, we refuse to accept the dictum that the Pacific struggle must be treated as a subordinate segment of the general conflict. It's not just all about Europe. By that, it is not meant that any one of the other theatres of war is of less importance than the Pacific, but that Australia asks for a concerted plan evoking the greatest strength at the democracy's disposal determined upon hurling Japan back. The Australian government therefore regards the Pacific struggle as primarily one in which the United States and Australia must have the fullest say in the direction of the democracy's fighting plan. And it's only then that he talks about sentimental attachments to Britain. This is a realistic assessment of a geopolitical situation, not a rebellion against empire. And importantly, it was written two months before the actual fall of Singapore. And what was the fall of Singapore all about? Since 1923, Singapore had been identified as the keystone of British Empire defence planning in Asia. There was a Singapore strategy where if any threat developed in Asia, a fleet could be sent from Britain to the naval base in Singapore within three months. It's, I guess, what we now call forward defence, a posture of forward defence. Britain saw Singapore as an impregnable fortress, but the reality of World War II was that Britain had to pivot to Europe. It couldn't pivot to Asia, so to speak. It had to go to Europe and fight for its life there. As a result, Japan, which had been engaged in war with China for a number of decades, Japan seized its opportunity and landed on the Malayan Peninsula in December 1941. In fact, on the same day as the attack on Pearl Harbor, always remember this, that Pearl Harbor, especially if you're an American listener, Pearl Harbor was not the only attack that was launched on that day by Japan. It wasn't all about America. Japanese forces were very effective. They pushed through an ill-prepared line of defenders who panicked, were confused and quickly withdrew down the Malayan Peninsula to Singapore. In fact, evacuating Malaya to Singapore by the end of January. And then the battle for Singapore began on the night of the 8th and the 9th of February when Japan landed on the northwest of the island and effectively used air air attacks from a direction that the fortress had not planned for to to overwhelm the fortress. By 15th of February, i.e. within a week, the Allied forces had lost complete control 
of the island and the British accepted the Japanese demand for unconditional surrender, leading to um, 130,000 British troops becoming prisoners of war, including 22,000 Australians. Now there are just a few resonances, I guess, of the fall of Kabul there, the lack of planning and the, the quick, quick defeat and the unconditional surrender. And perhaps we should be grateful that many of the Americans left behind in Afghanistan are not prisoners of war because that would become a huge part of the national psyche in Australia for decades afterwards the the memories and the suffering of the Australians at Changi and other places in Japanese prison of prisoner of war camps and especially any listeners from outside Australia to this podcast you should know that this event is absolutely crucial in Australian collective memory and the sort of political strategy so to speak of foreign affairs it is as Hugh White said you know our largest strategic shock and it's the sort of go-to example of being abandoned by our imperial masters on the 75th anniversary of uh fall of Singapore just a few years ago the geostrategist Hugh White wrote uh, Hugh White who I spoke about a little bit earlier he wrote this only in the last 20 years has the lesson that lesson i.e. the lesson he talked about before of of uh, of that alliances fail only in the last 20 years has that lesson been forgotten since about 1996 and especially since the mid-2000s, Australian political leaders on both sides of the aisle have become sublimely confident that Australia's security can be entrusted to the care of our principal ally. Few now suggest that Australia might need to defend itself and its most vital interests independently. And this is despite the fact, so obvious but so seldom acknowledged, that the fundamental distribution of wealth and power has been shifting rapidly against the United States. Today, relative to its Asian rivals, America is weaker economically, diplomatically and militarily than it has been since World War II, and yet we rely on it more. The parallels with the years before Singapore are all too obvious. So the fall of Singapore holds a vital lesson for us that alliances can and do fail and that any strategic policy that does not give that reality due weight is likely to fail too. The question, of course, as it was in the 1930s, is what's the alternative? That is the question we should be addressing much more seriously. There are answers to be found, but they are not easy ones. Now, I'm going to give a quick, rapid-fire, in a way, highly, highly focused little mini-history of Australian foreign policy since 1942. I'm no expert on this, so this is just my particular read on, on events, some of which I guess I've lived through and based on, you know, reading and stuff. And 
particularly focused on this question of, you know, in World War II, in a way, Curtin makes a decisive read about a achieving regional security for Australia through combining with more than one power and in particular switching uh, reliance for defence security from one empire, the Anglo Empire, to its successor empire, the American Empire, but still within the umbrella of the Anglo-American ascendancy, so to speak, that, uh, say, we talked about in an earlier episode of the podcast, like uh, the the historian of Russia and stuff, Dominic Levin, speaking about the dominance of the Anglo-American empires for the last 300 years. So it's still moving from, I guess, between those successor Anglo-American empires. And I think, in a way, this is perhaps what's a little bit different about this realisation with the fall of Kabul, that we might be seeing the ascendancy of Eurasian non-Anglo-American empires, the world island, rather than the Atlantic ascendancy. And that poses a different kind of question to Australian foreign policy. So from 1942, the famous statement from Curtin, really to, like, say, uh, 1950, let's say, there's clearly the battle for survival during World War II with the Coral Sea and Guadalcanal, all that sort of thing, which is ultimately successful. And then Australia plays a significant role, including through um, Doc Everett in the formation of the United Nations. And, you know, in that immediate post-war period, effectively the post-war ascendancy of America is established and its economic dominance of the world is established. Through the 1950s, then, Britain, uh, Australia rather, really, perhaps in a way, re-establishes close links with the British Empire as Britain actually draws on its remaining imperial possessions, or at least imperial allies, to recover from the devastation of World War II and to recover its economy. But at the same time, through partition in 1947 and Suez Crisis and then uh, decolonisation movements in Asia and Africa in the 50s and 60s, Britain's empire is unwinding. And then in the 1960s, really, Britain uh, starts to make a move towards the European common market and uh, doing more trade with Europe and, I guess, America rather than with its uh, the old sort of dominions, as, as uh, we will call. And, of course, in the 60s is when America is drawn into, most unsuccessfully, let's say, into the conflicts in Vietnam and Indochina uh, and has its own its own shock to empire moment, uh, ultimately with the withdrawal from Saigon in 1974. But, uh, you know, a long predecessor few years of strife and doubt and questioning about whether it was really on the side of the good. And then from this time, 
this is really where there starts to emerge in Australia a kind of, I guess, the greatest questioning of the closeness to America, a significant questioning of the alliance and a nationalistic sort of response, a yearning for an independent foreign policy separate from Britain and yet also separate from America, but wolf out still within the bipolar world of the Cold War and really a quite a quite insecure and strife-torn world, especially in our part of the world, in Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, conflicts, etc., in all those areas in this sort of period. And I guess this is also the period where, you know, famously you get Midnight Oil singing US bases, get the nod... Forces give the nod. It's a setback for your country. Um, stand up for your country, and uh, you know protests outside American bases, and much, much more hostility towards ANZAC marches and things like that than there are uh, there is today. Then through the 1980s. Bob Hawke and Paul Keating become Prime Minister and Treasurer and Gareth Evans is Foreign Minister for a long time as is Bill Hayden and there's a kind of a US friendly multilateralism established in uh, Australia and the beginnings of a broader engagement with Asia especially with China after 1989 it had begun earlier, in the early 1970s, uh, but it accelerates very much with the economic reforms in the mid-1980s, which were partly instigated or advised upon by Ross Garno, who produced a famous report about Australia and Northeast Asia, I think. We were really talking about the economic opportunities of developing the relationship between Australia and China. In 1996, government changes to John Howard and it's a lot of continuity with the engagement of Asia. It's probably broadened uh, a little bit um, and there's probably less focus on, I guess, multilateralism and a, a, a sort of assertive medium power kind of Australia uh, and more focus on strong uh, relationships with America and with, with, I guess, traditional partners of America, England, you know, the United Kingdom, but underpinning all of that also a continuing strengthening of engagement in Asia and including uh, significant interventions in East Timor, uh, sort of peacekeeping missions in East Timor and, and all the rest of it and some changes in relationships with Indonesia. Of course, in 2001... The 9-11 attacks occur. John Howard calls on, uh, you know, invokes the ANZUS Treaty as an attack on America, meaning that Australia will come to the defence of America. We have that sort of era, so to speak, that Hugh White talked about earlier of us 
proving ourselves a really good, a loyal ally, a loyal ally and a strong friend to America by commitments to the Gulf in Afghanistan, the Iraq war and all that sort of thing. Throughout all that time, there is still a continuing engagement with Asia, but still very much, and on from both sides, there is a, a deepening of the sort of tie-in between the political elite in Australia and uh, American security interests and diplomatic geostrategic thinking. Uh, you get more and more think tanks established that really espouse those kind of views and there are all sorts of people-to-people ties that reinforce that. In 1996, Kevin Rudd's, uh, not 1996, in 2007, I think, um, Kevin Rudd is elected, former diplomat, Chinese speaker or student of Chinese language, vastly ambitious in his ideas, still a very vocal exponent of close relationships with China. And through these years, I guess, the ultimate expression of a balancing of Australia's relationship with America, with a stronger economic partnership with China, a big focus on uh, Asia, particularly around the economic focus, but within the umbrella of a concept of US global leadership. And during this time, Australia produces paper called Australia in the Asian Century, I think under Prime Minister Gillard, although it might have begun earlier, which sort of really expresses that sort of broad philosophy. Again, more engagement was the term with Asia, but still within the concept that our defence security is provided by America. Then 2017 is the white paper on foreign policy which I guess is current foreign policy doctrine, so to speak, in Australia, although I suspect some of it is going to change a little bit. Um, And this puts a real focus on the Indo-Pacific. We tend to drop the term the Asian century, probably wisely because it's a bit of a silly term, and we talk about more engagement with the Indo-Pacific. So that pretty much takes us to the current day. And I just had a couple of comments about how the defeat in Afghanistan potentially disturbs some of the assumptions about the white paper of 2017. But before I get into that, let me just read briefly from the preface, the Prime Minister's introduction to the foreign policy white paper. The Prime Minister we're talking about there was Malcolm Turnbull. So this white paper... Was it 2014 was when Julia Gillard slash Rudd era ended and then Tony Abbott was elected Prime Minister and then he was replaced by Malcolm Turnbull and then Malcolm Turnbull was replaced by Scott Morrison. But so this foreign policy white paper came out in the relatively brief period of uh, Malcolm Turnbull's Prime Ministership. And the last two paragraphs of his little paper say this, More than ever... Australia must be sovereign, not reliant. We must take... So handling this whole tension between relying on great powerful friends and yet asserting an independent foreign policy. We must take responsibility for our own security and prosperity while recognising we are stronger when sharing the burden of leadership with trusted partners and friends. Pretty large burden share, but there you go. The foreign policy white paper 
shows Australia to be focused on our region, determined to realise a secure, open and prosperous Indo-Pacific, while also strengthening and diversifying partnerships across the globe. It shows how we are meeting the challenges of an uncertain future with confidence, open to the world and its opportunities, while resolutely resisting threats to our way of life. Nice rhetoric there, not very specific guidance, I guess, to what we are really trying to do. But the key themes it talks about a little bit are, I talk about a contested world and an evolving international order, but it's really framed as China as a rising power that we want to incorporate within the US rules-based international order. And it talks about a stable and prosperous Indo-Pacific. And again, largely focused on US, China and Southeast Asia. I don't think the term Eurasia even appears in the foreign policy white paper. I haven't done a check, but it's certainly not in the table of contents there. Then there's also a fair bit of focus on keeping Australia safe and security, particularly addressing terrorism. And most of the discussion of Afghanistan and all that sort of thing is really framed against that concept. And looking at this white paper the other day in the light of events in in Kabul, in Afghanistan, and the discussion over the last couple of weeks about the rise of Eurasia and the decline of America, the emergence of a multipolar world, and, and challenges to an American or Atlanticist-defined rules-based order versus... A, a broader set of international institutions that the Eurasian and African states equally participate in defining. There were probably six six comments I had where I think its read of events is starting to get a little bit uh, misleading. So first of all, it does not really come to terms with the whole concept of Eurasia and what I talked about in uh, two previous episodes of the podcast of the, the conflict between the Atlantic versus the world island of Eurasia. It uses this concept of Indo-Pacific, but it doesn't really talk about the broader, I guess, real geostrategic context of that, that location and how power is projected and, and how economic relationships are connected as well both between the oceans and the continents. The second point is really, it does use this term Indo-Pacific, but it does sort of define it in quite a strange way. I mean, I guess if Indo-Pacific means the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean and all those countries are that border on the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, that is a very large part of the world, uh, and doesn't really help account for for European presence in any of that as well. Then within a footnote in the paper, it actually defines Indo-Pacific a little bit narrower, narrower as the region ranging from the eastern Indian Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, connected by Southeast Asia, including India, North Asia and the United States. So we're only really concerned about the Indian Ocean up to the point of India and don't really go further ahead to the Persian Gulf, the Red Sea, 
the eastern uh, seaboard of Africa. And this concept, in a way, is convenient because it does, and it's significant because really what it's doing is let's not obsess about China, folks. Let's also think about India, which is a really good move, a smart move, but it doesn't really define the region. You know, talks about being focused on this region, but it doesn't really define the region in a meaningful, practical uh, geographic and strategic way. Okay, the third point is that third point is it very much assumes US global leadership. And clearly I guess a lot of the focus in this in this uh, podcast has been around America being an empire in denial, an empire in decline, and it is I think that has become abundantly clear over the last few years, perhaps even more clear than it was in 2017. I think a real reckoning with Australian foreign policy has got to deal with the non-hegemonic America. What world can we live in that does not assume US global leadership? How can we find a, a new concert of powers between the great states of the world? The fourth point is how it deals with globalization versus nationalism. This document came out in 2017. It reads very much like a, a, a defensive response. I mean, these days it reads a little bit like a defensive response to the election of Donald Trump and the loss of the Brexit refer referendum. And it certainly construes globalisation in very positive terms and is talking about the threats to Australia maximising the opportunities of globalisation from nationalism and, and uh, restrictions on free trade. There's been significant changes in just, well, partly provoked by the pandemic, but also the shifting balance of power of financial institutions and the relative role of the Eurasia, etc., the Belt and Road Initiative, the, the institutions of globalisation are not quite the assumed American Western model that was clearly in the mind of the authors of the 2017 foreign policy white paper. So, so the construction of uh, all of that is probably a little bit different as well. And again, this is significant because it's very much important for China as well because nationalism affects China and some of the other Eurasian states as well. It says that how countries conduct themselves globally and act to meet common challenges matters greatly to Australia in the post-Second World War period we have benefited significantly from an international order shaped by US power and global leadership. Our world has been characterised by an increasingly integrated economy and the development of international rules and institutions. The principles embedded in the post-war order have strongly supported Australia's interests and our values. But they talk about forces of change, buffeting these institutions and systems, but never really come to terms, although it does recognise that these the rules are being contested in some ways, but largely presenting those contests as illegitimate contests, like bad Russians or that kind of thing. Uh, 
and very much saying that it's in, in Australia's interest to keep this these international rules and agreed norms of behaviour going rather than come to terms with a set of institutions that would suit a multipolar world rather than a US-driven world. And then terrorism again is presented as uh, extremists exploiting fragile and violence-prone states for safe havens and to build skills. It's, it's, you know, Afghanistan is the a home for Al-Qaeda uh, kind of thing. And that's very much the assumption around it rather than terrorism as... So, you know, th- there are perhaps ways in which the whole thought about terrorism and I guess what the Taliban represent and all that sort of thing probably needs to be rethought as well. And then finally, the framing of the China-US relationship is perhaps again you know we've gone to a new new level of things and so it is very much i guess really an advocacy document to say come on china be part of this uh, u.s rules-based order don't hang out with those bad russians and central asian states be one of us follow our rules and you'll prosper with us and if you do then we don't have to worry so much about threats to our security because we'll just try send you iron ore and you'll sort of do whatever send us cheap goods and we'll all get on just great but clearly over the last few years china has become much more assertive much more aggressive uh, much more challenging of this rules-based order and it has assembled a coalition of states in eurasia that give geostrategic reality to that new rules-based order and in a way the defeat in Afghanistan I think is highlighting each of these points uh, each of these weaknesses in Australian foreign policy we don't really deal with the concept of Eurasia we have a a loose definition of Indo-Pacific of what our region is we are too reliant on US global leadership or we've made too much of an assumption about continuing US dominance. We're misreading what's going on in the tensions between globalization and local cultures, local nationalism, economic sovereignty within states, all the rest of it. We've probably misread terrorism and it's it the strength of the local based movements that use methods of terror but might act differently and we've both misread the China-US relationship and seen a significant shift in both posture and balance of power between both of those uh, great states. All of which means there's significant ground that's shifted and yet what I fear is that we after the fall of Kabul are bringing many of these same assumptions, these old loyalties, these old, to use John Curtin's phrase, these pangs, these traditional links, this kinship with the United States and its rules-based order. We're bringing many of these to our thinking about the geostrategic realities before us and not doing a hard-headed assessment that replaces sentimental ideas with grounded geostrategic 
policies that suit our national interest. So, so we tend to get a lot of rhetoric about talking our great and powerful friends to be courageous again and to be and show ourselves to be firm allies and to be t- even tougher than the toughest neocons in America. But this might just be replaying old problems rather than adapting afresh to the new situation. So I think we kind of need a bit of a mental shift in Australia. And I guess this is a bit of a thought experiment on my part. But I do think we need a bit of a mental shift, which I could summarise as a Primakov doctrine for Australia. Now, Primakov was the foreign minister of Russia. He was really the architect of the change in strategy from Russia from the late 1990s, from a hankering to be accepted by Europe, Western Europe and America, to being uh, assertively independent within a multipolar world. And as I think I said in the episode on the rise in Eurasia, what we're seeing in Europe, uh, there, there was a Russian commentator who talked about not just a economic a change of uh, perspective about the economic interests between Russia and China, but a change in approach amongst the intellectual elites, a, a reorientation of ideas and culture and people and thoughts about history from from dreaming of acceptance by Europe to engaging with the realities of China and India and the multipolar world that is around Russia and the Central Asian states. Primakov had it, had this basically drove this strategy for the multipolar world for Russia, which had really three components, which was to dominate the post-Soviet space of the former former USSR republics, to weaken NATO, and to ally with China and India. Not high-minded rhetoric like what was spoken in Malcolm Turnbull's foreword, very focused, practical, not vague statements about regions, but real comments around with real verbs around real states. And I think we probably need to think about a similar Primakov doctrine that for Australia that doesn't mouth platitudes about Australia in the Asian century or prospering in the Indo-Pacific, but actually defines a much more sensible, practical thing that is in a, in a real grounded concept of our place in the world. And what is our place in the world? Well, our place in the world, I think, is one of the outer archipelagos of coastal Eurasia. Just like Japan, just like Indonesia, just like the Philippines, just if you like by the subcontinent of India, we are part of the great coastal arc of Eurasia. With who live and die and trade and prosper by our connections with the continents by sea. So if I were to propose three strategies for my thought experiment, Primakov Doctrine for Australia, they would be these. That we pursue stability in coastal Eurasia with a reduced US military presence. That we strengthen UN-based international law and institutions, when multilateral institutions, not just an American rules-based order. 
and that we ally with India, Indonesia, Japan, Philippines, possibly Vietnam, all the great states of coastal Eurasia, to create a post-American third force to balance continental Eurasia. And I think maybe this could actually give us the kind of regional security we need without driving us into a conflict of a bipolar world between China and the United States. Anyhow, it's just an idea. I'm just a lowly bureaucrat and a writer and a podcaster and a historian. So, who knows? Let me know if you think it's a good idea. Okay, that brings us to the end of the podcast for today. Very interesting times. Obviously, the announcement around the AUKUS Forever Alliance has provoked a lot of controversy, and I've talked around those issues but not directly assessed them. But I think it is useful to think about some of the historical models. There is some very sloppy thinking going on. For example, former Prime Minister Paul Keating has said that if the United States military, with all its might, could not beat a bunch of Taliban rebels with AK-47 rifles in pickup trucks, what chance would it have in a full-blown war against China? Not only the biggest state in the world, but the commander and occupant of the largest landmass in Asia. When it comes to conflict, particularly among great powers, land beats water every time. So, good on him for trying, but I think some of the discussion today just shows some of the fallacies in that kind of thinking. I I think America's moment of humiliation in Afghanistan is driving a lot of people in Australia to argue that we get more serious firepower, and I think it's also leading to a bit of a rushed reinvention of the Anglo-American empire. But I guess the theme of several of my podcasts has been the dominance of the Anglo-American empires is passing from the world stage. And we need to get used to a different set of arrangements in a more multipolar world. And that our foreign policy really ought to be be laying the groundwork for a more durable regional network of security rather than putting our trust in a declining power. Just summarising again, every country that responds to the defeat in Afghanistan or any major historic event, you get multiple comparisons with history and it's really important to have a good old look at those ideas to make sure you're not a prisoner of old ideas. The fall of Kabul is a wake-up call to, I think, all the middle powers of the world, like Australia, that the chess game of geopolitics has changed. We live in a multipolar world of various kinds of states, not a new cold war between democracy and autocracy. And for Australia especially, I think, we need to tighten out geostrategic thinking learn some new lessons perhaps from both the fall of Singapore and the fall of Kabul and focus on our real interests and not the fading ambitions of a collapsing empire. 
So look, it's been another long episode of the podcast. I I will probably take a break from geopolitical imperial rivalry themes next week. Maybe do something about culture. And uh, until then, do remember, uh, as Ezra Pound will say shortly, to the music of J.S. Bach, what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee, unless that is... It is the American dream. Okay, bye. What thou lovest well remains, the rest is dross. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. Whose world, or mine, or theirs, or is it of none? First came the scene, then thus the palpable Elysium, which were in the halls of hell. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee.